Welcome to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson and I ask my guests one simple question. Why? Focusing on the importance of why, I share with you the relatable, uplifting and inspiring conversations I have with people from all walks of life. This podcast will encourage you to focus on your why to enable and empower you to achieve the success you desire. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why. Welcome Richard Hagen to the Focus on Why podcast. Thank you, Amy. It's great to be here. Well, Richard is the co-founder of Empower and Immersive Publishing. Tell us more, Richard. Okay, so our business is about 10 years old, uh, actually 11 this this month, 11 years old, and we are a traditional publishing company. So we actually invest money and time and energy in people's projects. If they come to us with great manuscripts and, and they've done We've got it to 80% there. Um, and then we also, immersive publishing is, if you like, our author development side to the business, which is where we work with people who have got great experience and expertise and ideas, but don't know how to structure that or express that in books or in products. And we work with them as partners in that development process. And you mentioned traditional. What do you mean? Well, I mean, there's so many different forms of publishing today. Uh, whether it's self-publishing or hybrid publishing, which is kind of a variant of what we used to have as vanity publishing, where you would pay someone to publish your stuff. Self-publishing, you click a button and it appears on Amazon or other sites. A traditional publisher is someone who spends money through editorial design, the production of your book, and then makes it available through the distribution channel. So you've got a partner is focused on making it brilliant quality and delivering incredible value for readers so it's rather than doing it on your own or or paying someone if you like to do the publishing bit of it and why is it important for you to be a traditional publisher i i think for me it's about partnering it's about it's about touching each other's value and quality so I am not an expert marketer. I'm not an expert in leadership consultant or HR. The people that I work with are. So it's brilliant. I get a kind of masterclass as I work on any project with anyone. Um, But my partner in the business, Martin, and myself bring a huge, very weird, eclectic bunch of skills to the table that actually helps them clarify their message, craft it, and then create the book that begins to get their message out in a much much bigger, much more powerful way. So for me, partnership, and it's almost, particularly with the immersive publishing process, it's actually about co-creating something that none of us could do on our own. And we create something together that is just so much better than we could even imagine at the beginning of the project. So it's partnership and co-creation is, is really important to me. You mentioned weird and eclectic skills. Where do they come from? <laughs> okay, where do we start? <laughs> uh, so I'll talk about myself. You, my partner in the business is Martin Pentecost. Um, you can look him up on LinkedIn, and it's Martin with a Y. Uh, my background, it's, it's kind of normal to me. It's the only one I've got, but I think other people find it quite peculiar slash interesting slash scary. So... 11 years running the publishing company. Before that, I, uh, well, no, let's go back a little bit. So for the last four years, I've been full-time in our own publishing company. 
But when we set the business up 11 years ago, I simultaneously was was retraining as a primary school teacher, which seems a perfectly sensible thing to do, to be doing like an apprenticeship in school full time and setting up a huge business and complexity. Um, Yeah, perfectly logical thing to do. Crazy, crazy. But I loved the school. I loved the teaching, loved primary. Um, I loved that that longer relationship, that intense relationship you have over time with the the children. And before that, I had been a member of a Catholic religious community. Um, Most people have heard about the Jesuits of the Franciscans. Uh, I was in a different community and they were called the poor man's Jesuits. That was the kind of kind of popular name in the Catholic scene because they were popular preachers, storytellers, teachers. It wasn't highly intellectual, which you have already grasped, no doubt, listening to me. It was really much more um, about getting to the core of things and sharing things in a very positive, powerful way um, and popular style. So I was 12, 12 years a priest with them and eight years before that as in training. So I did eight years training and then 12 years out working. And I did everything from, uh, that's where I started writing when I was 21. They ran the biggest Catholic publishing company in the UK. And so for that 20 years, I was started writing, then writing an editorial, did um, kind of joint book projects and doing various publishing projects and that. And I trained in NLP, trained in hypnotherapy to help my preaching skills get better, my counselling skills. Um, so that's just a flavour of kind of some of the strangeness behind me. For 20 years, what did you do in that time? Well, the first eight years, I bounced up. I mean, I actually, if I look back on it, I moved house a lot. <laughs> It'd be, probably be... The bottom line, I think in that 20 years, I moved house slash community about 10 times. So I studied uh, in, uh, not studied, my first year in Plymouth was a kind of introduction to community life and community living. And then I had a couple of years in Canterbury at the college there, the Franciscan Study Centre, which is up. Anyone knows Canterbury, there's a beautiful university campus and the Franciscan study was just on the edge of that lovely place. I uh, loved Canterbury, um, studied there for three years, went back to Plymouth and did a year out, which was probably both the best and the toughest year of my life in many ways because I had no jobs to do. I had no no formal studies to do. The function of that year was to kind of reflect and decide what I wanted to do. Did I want to be part of this community and what did I want to do with my life? Um and then I went back to Canterbury and carried on my studies. Um, and that was everything from scripture to uh, theology to preaching to counselling techniques uh, and all kinds of spaces in between and enjoying the odd kind of arm drum thing that I would sneak on to uh, the uni campus and join the, the arm drum for that. Um, and then when I was out working after I'd been ordained, pretty much for the 12 years I was running things called parish missions. So it was, if you imagine uh, Catholic parishes uh, get very stuck in their ways. They have the same parish priest for years and years, lovely people generally. Um, 
and the communities get very used to each other. And as soon as that person stands up to speak, everybody kind of knows what they're going to say. They've heard the story a hundred times. And my job on parish missions was to go in and kind of wake everybody up, give everybody a kind of a boost and a reorient them. Because again, like most organisations, they end up becoming members clubs rather than kind of externally focused or mission oriented so my job was to kind of go do you know it's lovely you all love each other but you know the world's out there waiting for you to do something useful you know so that was my job to go in and disrupt the normal um, so you were the warm-up so, you were the warm-up act uh, partly the warm-up um but it was almost the uh, the disruptor um because i think and i think that it's a it's a kind of kind of thinking about this podcast I kind of recognized I think I've always been a really awkward sod to have around because I'm always going why why um why are you doing that where does it say that is it actually working those kind of questions and and I and I know there are situations where I shouldn't do that like at school meetings of staff when I was a teacher but I can't help myself because I'm going to, if we're not thinking about these things, we're not doing a good job. Um, so yeah, so that's, it was warm up, but almost a kind of a, with a little bit of a kind of um, a stirring the pot, if you like, behind it as well. And what kept you in the church for 20 years? I had a mission that I had committed to. Um, so I, I I wanted to help people and, and there was something happened to me when I was about 11 or 12 that kind of made that really concrete but the church made my community was the way in which I could live that out and I made incredibly big bold public statements about pledging my life to this community and to the mission and the work and the impact that I had was just amazing. And, uh, you know, people allowed me access to their hearts and their minds in a way that is just in- incredibly humbling. But in the end, the community that I was part of, uh, I just, it, I couldn't, I couldn't thrive in it anymore. Uh, and it had become destructive and repressive for me and more and more and more conservative um and and I, I, whatever i did i just i that I, I could do my brilliant work outside but there was nowhere uh, recreating or refreshing to come back home to um and you can only run on empty for so long so the work was amazing the people that i worked with and and parishes were was amazing but i i kind of ran out of juice in the end so where did you go? I went uh, off on a year sabbatical uh, with no particular plan, which is kind of unusual for me. And I kind of went on sabbatical knowing that was it, that I wouldn't be going back. Um, and I, I, I did, I, I, until recently, I used to always say, I th- you know, I kind of just about missed the breakdown. I don't think I did looking back on it. Uh, I think I did have a breakdown, but I did my uh, kind of effective masking thing to it. And I think it was incredibly, so I I was really angry um, for a couple of years, probably didn't come out too much, but, you know, I think it was all 
I suppose disappointment and heart and disappointment with myself. I'd said all these things and they have gone off, blah, blah, blah. So I suppose I kind of went to an interesting place um, at that point. And yet I still felt I had the same mission and the school that's where the transition to school work because I I used to do a huge amount of work in, in the schools because I would have access to parents and the broader community through the school that that I would never have in the formal church context so I would be I'd be standing up and getting 200 kids to do daft action songs and I'd be I'd be there with my Simba puppet and talking to the kids with the puppet and doing all this kind of crazy stuff and then and walking into classrooms and doing my gig and walking out, God, and now looking back on it, that I'm sure those teachers cursed me when I left because bringing them back down to earth after I'd hyped them up for 10 minutes must have been horrendous. So that's why I transitioned to, to primary at that point because I knew I could relate to the kids and I could have an impact on them. Uh, and then Martin and I had bizarre conversations and decided let's set up a business together at the same time so yeah that's kind of where I went after the church scene. So why is teaching so important to you? Okay so I I'm not talking about teaching as in school but almost I think almost 95% of what we run our lives by what we believe and what we think stopped serving us at some point and we've just held that belief and carried on living that out and for me teaching is it's it's I don't it's interesting I don't use the word teaching too much it's all I'd much rather look at it as helping people think um, and learn how to think. So in school, I was much more enthusiastic about teaching the kids how to learn than than the mechanics of 1066. And I would do it and I'd enjoy that. But I, I, I really loved when we could do projects that I could encourage the kids in how to analyse, how to reflect, how to make how to imagine, how to how to kind of build stuff and build their own model of the world. That bit I loved. Uh, and I could do the mechanical bit. but And I think actually, in, in many ways, I don't think adults are any different. You know, I, I know that probably most of the things that I just do by default without thinking, there's a much more expansive, a much richer way of thinking. There's a, there are certainly more effective ways of doing things. Um, and life's too short not to be going at this full pill, not to be 100% on it. So I think it's not teaching in a formal academic sense. It's more for me about almost liberating that potential that we've got. And how does the process of encouraging people to think, analyse, reflect and build their lives differently, how does that, what does that impact is that making on people? You have to, so you, there's two things to this. So there's what I hallucinate is happening to them. And then they're the only ones that can tell you what impact it's ha- happening on on them. But I mean, if I think about it from my current position as a publisher, as someone who works 
you know, with the author and we pour our hearts into a project. You know Jez uh, from the Professional Speaking Association and we published his book and and it is quirky, it's funny, it is Jez in a book. And, and I love that kind of when somebody's thinking, oh, it's a standard book on public speaking skills and they open it and they burst out laughing because Jez is on a page looking ridiculous and doing something funny and his and 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 I love that that immediately they have they've gone on to what I call the wobble boards what they expected what they wanted and what they what they thought they needed has been completely wiped out and they're now in that place where oh this is interesting what can I learn whereas they op- they start most people start a book by going Oh, I know leadership or I know public speaking skills or, yeah, I know I need to learn a bit more, but I expect I'll be told it like this. And I think for me, I, it's that's when I see impact like that, I know we're doing something right because it's not the normal way people respond. So you've always been a disruptor and one who doesn't like the easy route or the easy answers to the questions. Oh, uh, I would I would actually like to be someone who liked the easy answers. <laughs> it would make life much easier. Uh, but but uh, it, but the world is complex, you know. And I think I, th- I think we are not served by uh, by organisations or gurus or furus, whatever you want to call them, who 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 present a fake simplicity, what they're being is being simplistic. You know, we think, we, we, when we think back to even the, the, the early human beings who were hunters, they are dealing with complexity. The people who thrived and who, who, who came to kind of prominent positions as leaders were the ones who could spot the patterns of movement of animals, could predict what was going to happen and, 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 and impose patterns and evolve a way of filtering the world around them that they could then make that world adapt to their needs. And I think, I think in the world we live in, it's complex and it's getting more complex and the seduction of simplistic solutions. I I get it and I understand it's more seductive now because of the immense complexity. But every time we fall for someone else's simplistic solution, we're handing away our dignity. We're handing away our ability to really direct and design our lives. And so that's why I, I just... I do do easy answers sometimes, but they usually bite me in the backsides before too long. Not for the first time. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. So tell me, moving from the church into the teaching and now into business, where, where have all of those elements sort of come together for you to now be living with purpose? And this is the bit where some people think what an arrogant, pompous person he is. I think I, I think, I think I've always lived with purpose, and 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 that at points has been the biggest challenge when my, if you like, my personal mission or my personal purpose has clashed with the external reality or the external, if you like, agent, like the community that was to be the channel 
that my purpose would be expressed through. So, I mean, and it go, when I was 11 or 12, uh, and I, it's a very peculiar, I, I, I had a pair of blue flannel paisley pattern pyjamas. I don't know why I remember that, but I remember just one night and um, mum and dad's marriage was not a happy one, let's put it that way. And this was a spectacularly bad night. It was, you know, late at night, early in the morning, and uh, it, it had all kicked off. Um, and uh, there was aunts and uncles in. I don't know what it was. There was trying to kind of negotiate a peace treaty or something. I'm not entirely sure. But I, re- I got out of bed and I was standing in the hallway in my PJs and listening to this, and the tears just flowing down my my cheeks and. And and I'd be shooed off two or three times and I'd come back because I'm kind of nosy as well. So I kind of wanted to know what was going on. And eventually getting shooed back in and staying in bed and just being in tears because I, I didn't know what was going to happen next, where we were going to be, how it was all going to play out. And I just remember feeling horrendous. And, and that's it. And, and I, I don't know if I articulated it, to myself at that point or whether I felt it or or something or reached out towards it something but I know that when I think that's the moment where I kind of went I don't want anyone to feel like this and um and that <clears throat> excuse me that I think that's actually been a driver for me ever since and uh, so it's a kind of a reaction, but I I've, I kind of then always pretty much flip things around and go, okay. And I think, I, I again, it's just my pers- perspective. I think loads of people spend the, their lives thinking, why did this happen to me? Um, so they're always looking for a reason for something. Whereas I think I tend to... Once I go through my angry bit or my sad bit or my depressed bit, whatever, I'm, I then get to that and go, so what's the reason from this? How, what, what am I going to do? How, what do I need to learn from this? What do I need to share from this? What do I need to do from it? Um, why, you know, move it forward? And I think that that same prevent people from being unnecessarily hurt is a massive driver for me. And in fact, even more so now in business um, uh, in many ways. But this is also for that, I want something much better for, for myself and for the people that I love and the people that I, I speak to or meet when I'm out in business. And I love that just shift from reason for something to the reason from that. It's just really powerful and just a simple sort of juggling of words but, or letters rather. But it's it's so powerful to to know that something happened to you very early on life that has now created an entire life's work or life's mission. And in your publishing, what is is that what you're trying to do as well? Or what is it you're trying to do? I mean, so here's like uh, here's the big, the big, crazy, out there, ridiculous mission, if you like, in terms of the business, the publishing company is, and our company's name is Empower, but we can't spell it, so we don't have the E's in Empower, so it's just M P O W R. For us, the publishing business isn't about today; it's about, if you like, our legacy. 
It's about, I mean, or, or if you like, the mission behind the, the, the business is to transform the lives of millions of people. That, I mean, it's, it's kind of a small goal, but, you know, I kind of... It's a big you know. statement. It's a bold statement. <laughs> I think, I mean, it's, and it, I think, because other, otherwise, why bother? I think that's my, I think, I don't have kids. Uh, I've got this very strange his, personal history. You know, we started the business when I was in my early 40s. I don't have a lot of time. But this, even if I live till I'm 80 or 90, in the grand scheme of things, if I spend 40 years in this business, which is my baby, I, I want to do everything I can in it to create a legacy that outlasts me. And I think the magic in, in, in being a, pu- a publisher is that, that, I, that I work with others to help them, them achieve their mission. And, and that, that works in, to build our legacy in, in the long run um, of empowerment and transformation. Yeah. And when you're working with the publishers, how much of an impact do you have on the content, on, on how that they're structured, on, on the books that should be written versus the books that should never be written? I mean, we have a very, if you like, very focused publishing business. We are not uh, a publish all kinds of books from books for kids uh, to professional, technical, how to use PowerPoint, if you like, in a mechanical way, or how to how to um, read a legal document. That's not our. We're not publishers in those kind of zones. We, I would say, we are a business focused on transformation publishing. So, I would say, and again, you ninety five percent seems to be me at my completely popped out of the top of my head number, but I kind of feel it. So it's, I'm not saying it's ninety five percent, but what I see around me feels like 95%. I think most people when they're writing books are dumping information that everybody already has access to and it and it's deadly. It's deadly for themselves as an author because it doesn't get results. It's deadly for the reader because they go oh god not another one giving me the same five step you know failing formula you know or or just bombarding me with 100 pages of bullet points. For us, it's got to be about transformation. So, I think I'm. Beca- I think for me, I'd much rather that somebody, if they hear me speak or they read what I've written or watch a video, is I'm. They go, do you know what? He's put me off writing a book. There's much more strategic and valuable things for me to do. I'd be happy for that because I'd be saving them a fortune. I'd be saving them a lot of time, a lot of money and energy, um, and protecting their business because. I genuinely, when I look out, I think 95% of business writers write really amateur books and, they, and they've been sold this thing about becoming the go-to expert and the premium price consultant by brainstorming for 10 minutes, writing 10 chapters, doing your 10 subsections for each chapter. And it's that simplistic, seductive sell, but it doesn't deliver value to anybody, least of all the author and certainly not the reader. So that's... So I can't help when I'm, my criteria is, is the reader going to be feeling different, thinking different and doing different at the end of this book? And I know grammatically that's a disaster, but feel, think and do and experience the transformation. So that's my core criteria for deciding on a book. And what book have you read that ticks that box? 
I mean, there's qu- I mean, there are quite a few. I mean, I think I think the foundational one. Let's ignore all the religious, the formally religious stuff. Take that as read, if you like. Um, the book that I probably go back to more often than any others is Viktor Frankl's *Man's Search for Meaning*. He's an Auschwitz survivor, and he, he was he had been I think he was a psychologist or a psychiatrist in Vienna before the Second World War. And in the camp, he kind of realized or came to a deeper understanding that the people who survived were the people who had a a reason for being alive after Auschwitz or whatever. So so he talked about the will to meaning and that that just it just it kind of hits me in my gut. And in my heart, I, I don't, I can't quite express, but it's just like a, for me that it's, it's, it, it kind of describes on a good day what I'm all about. Um, and most of them are good days. But, and I think that book I keep going back to, and, and I did it actually as lockdown started, I was actually in the middle of a rereading and noting from it, a very, very good time to be revisiting that. And it's, it's powerful stuff, but it's not simple. It's it's in the dark nakedness of yourself on your own that you'll figure out who you are and what you're about. And you don't. It's not a fixed answer, um, but it, it, it's something that you discover in your lifetime and over your lifetime. So. And what makes you pick it up several times over all those years? I think it's probably unconsciously getting me ready for a for a for a shift it's almost like a plugging back in to to reorient uh, so although i didn't know coronavirus was coming looking back even just three four months ago i'm I, I, that our business was about to go through another cycle another development cycle i mean we've been going 11 years but i would say if i'm being honest we've probably had five different businesses in that time because it has evolved in that period but the core driver and the core mission is the same but how we do it who we work for who we work with has evolved throughout that time and i think i think that book is it's almost um a kind of safe harbor to go back to core to my own core space if that makes any sense so this has been a, a fairly serious conversation, but you're not always a serious person. And I'm surprised there hasn't been more laughter in this in this conversation <laughs> because there's been plenty of stories. In fact, the, where I first met you was through the PSA, um, the Professional Speakers Association, where we're all about storytelling. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's been, I mean, I guess you're telling me your story and actually it's it's been quite sober, but it's not always been the case, has it? No, and I think, I mean, the thing about this is I'm telling my story backwards from, so this is all invented. This is, you know, what everything I've just explained as to the why I've done everything. That's what I'm saying now. It's not true. It's, It's the story I tell myself today about what happened when I was 11 and 12. And, you know, and, and, I could interpret my life and my purpose completely differently. So, you know, that I was, about a year ordained as a priest and I was part of a, a, a trip, a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and the Holy Land um, and Palestine. And 
And I found myself, and I was kind of naughty, so I didn't. Sometimes I wore clerics, you know, the black shirt and the white collar, and 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 sometimes I would go in mufti, as I would say. So, so I was actually leading the group round the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is the site of the crucifixion. No, that's right. Hang on a second. That's so long ago. I think I can't remember. I think it's that one. But it's, it's wherever the site of the crucifixion was, um, and. The it's a crazy, crazy place. The Christian church is mental, and it has each 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 little chapel is looked after by a different sect or denomination. And if and if you're if you're if you're sick, somebody else will, will move in and steal your chapel. I mean, it's just crazy. And I was at the the twelfth state that that we were doing the Stations of the Cross, a kind of Catholic devotional practice. And I was leading the prayers right at the site of the crucifixion. And this Orthodox priest with a huge, like, four, like, look like four foot, probably two foot tall, big hat, black from head to toe, literally came over and thumped me multiple times on my arm and started waving and shouting. And the tour guide who knew the game was just like horrified. And the poor, the poor people in my little group, like, Father Richard, what's going on? You know, it's like, I'm going, I have no bloody idea what's going on. I'm being mugged <laughs> at the crucifixion. See these Christians, how they love one another. You know, so, I mean, th- there are so many of those stories. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and I think for me, I, I, I don't talk about it too much, but actually I think they kind of puncture that, all that kind of big ego and the big kind of in-your-face destructive thing. But it, it's, yeah, so I mean, I've had lots of fun. I've been very, very lucky. I don't, it, it, this has all been quite heavy and pretend deep. But actually, you know, you can't live like that all the time. Um, the fun stuff's there. So, I mean, I, one of my best, one of the funniest things that ever happened to me, there's only one accent that I can do really brilliantly, and that's my own. I can't do American accents. And, all, and I've had a couple of disasters over the years that kind of bit parts in shows and plays. But my best acting part was at the Edinburgh Festival. And I was part of a, uh, a group from the Alton Fringe from Hampshire. And I somehow managed to squeeze into that team for, the, for their trip up to the Fringe. And it was Oscar Wilde's Salome. And I think I, I, think I had the opening lines of the, of the play. I was a like, pivotal character. I was the captain of the guard. And I think I only had about four lines. And it was we actually performed it in the in a church. It was a spectacularly gorgeous setting for this kind of palace and intrigue and all the rest of it. But my core moment was I committed suicide, so that was it. So I had, I had to plunge the dagger in, and and the red cloth would spurt out and stuff. And I, <clears throat> and I I I'm rubbish at acting, but on the first night of it actually being in front of people i i died and i kind of was twitching and 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 then kind of kind of died like as you do and i suddenly became aware that the other actors were all kind of frozen and nobody was speaking who should have been speaking and it was like it felt like a, a couple of minutes before md did anything and then eventually I all kind of moved on. And it was afterwards said to me, we thought you'd had an epileptic fit. 
and that you had passed out and it wasn't until you started kind of breathing <laughs> so i'm a brilliant corpser on stage well that's a great accolade isn't it <laughs> that's how you should introduce yourself at uh, any party <laughs> <laughs> and i mean the other thing i mean you've you've been part of the the lunch with friends craziness as well and that i i just loved that and that was something that popped out so we do this every every Tuesday lunchtime during lockdown and craziness. And and it, that happened because I think five or six of our core authors, literally within 40 hours, everything on their diary, because the speakers, trainers, consultants, had been wiped out pretty much for the rest of the year. And I went, what do we do? How do I help them? I said, let's just have a chat and see if there's something we can do with no particular agenda, but just to help each other out. And Lunch With Friends came out of it. And it's... It's just so much fun. And and it is it's almost like the naughty coffee time conversations that biz, that you have at work. But it's a group of we had to think we were 28 the other day. It's yeah. very adult, very Anglo-Saxon. Um, I will not mention any of it on your podcast, but it's definitely fun. It's brilliant. And uh, it's sort of brought together a, a bizarre, eclectic mix of people who actually have got have given each other a huge amount of value during this time and and been able to collaborate on various as is, is happening now, the podcast. And and I've also interviewed Mel and Jess as well, who, who are members. So authoring the future is something that I'm actually quite passionate about. And this is what this podcast is about. And it's not about the writing. It's about taking control of our lives. And, you know, you're, you're talking about how you have authored your own future and you're in the, you've also authored your own past today. Yeah, well, we do that every time we wake up and we go, oh, still here. You know, it, and then we, we, we make up the story. We tell the story the way we want to or don't want to. I mean, that's the tragedy of it, isn't it, that, that, Quite, I mean, quite often I will get stuck in a story that is not serving me or is, you know, is not moving me forwards or or it might be moving me forward, but might be blocking somebody else. And so that's where I need to to be aware of. Um, and then again, I see I've just gone serious again. So I'll pull back. I'll pull <laughs> that's back. OK. It's no problem. It's been I mean, it's been fascinating hearing your story. And, and I, I'm sure that people will recognize the 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 way that you analyze life and the way that you sort of think about life. And, and I'm sure that the eight years of studying and, and sort of being, I don't know if you're in isolation almost, but in terms of internally you were. I mean, bits of it were, I mean, that year and that, that kind of second time in Plymouth was a, a year in isolation with a group of about eight of us who were all going through the same process. So, yeah, so, I mean, so on one level, Lockdown is is kind of familiar terrain. Um, although I, when I was in Plymouth, I never felt the urge at, at Tesco's to actually just give the the woman behind the till a hug because I was desperate for a hug, you know. So that that never had happened before. So it, yeah, it's a. I think that I mean you talk about the authoring though. I think in in lots of areas of my own life, I. I've lived with what I I think I'm expected to do or to present a particular way of being myself to conform. And 
the reflective thing is, I think it's critical that going, uh, you don't need to go away anywhere, but to go inside and just, and you know, you know, just cherish yourself and trust that you're valuable, that you are, um, you're glorious, you know, and I have in my mission statement, I kind of, that I, that connect to each one. And I kind of, I talk about cherishing my unique flaws and beauties because that's just, I'm just me. And and I, and there's no point in pretending or fighting it. Just just enjoy it and make the most of it. Um, and I think then when you when you can do that, then you can begin to author the, your own future. Um, when you when you step beyond expectation, go inside and reflect, and then start to express it out. And what what who do I want to touch? What difference do I want to make? What legacy do I want to create? I love that. I think that's so powerful and it's a almost a great ending to this podcast, but I just want to ask you how people can get in touch with you first. How can they, how could they reach out and, and speak with you about the book that they're thinking of writing and either be sort of encouraged to, to not write it or to write it by yourselves? You, you can track me down. I mean, socials, uh, I kind of, uh, I find really problematic. They're pretty much the only one I kind of enjoy being on is LinkedIn. Um, so you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Richard Hagen with an E. Uh, and, um, or you can, you can go to immersive.pub. Um, and uh, if you are crazy enough to want to listen to more of me or watch me on video, then there's more than enough to to kind of satisfy you. And and very happy to have conversations. If if you've got beyond what you ex- what you think a book should be, or you're told what a book should be, if you've gone and reflected more on what does my book need to be. And then go on and started actually going to the next stage. We're going and and what does the reader need? That's when I think we can have a conversation that would be useful one way or the other. Absolutely, fantastic. So, one final word from you, Richard. What would you like to leave the audience with today? It's all, okay. This is slight off beam one, but do you know what? Whatever your thing is that really pees you off, that gets you angry or frustrated. That might be your superpower. That might be your super driver. It might be your energizer. I, I get angry a lot, and uh, I either I either uh, kind of retain it and it festers and makes me even more unpleasant and bitter, or I, I react in the moment. It doesn't happen as much now, and that's pretty much always destructive. Um, I might go, you know, I gave them just what for and walk away and then 10 minutes later go, what a horrible person. Um, and that's that relationship blocked or hurt. I think for me, it's that it's that when when I've when I've actually gone away and reflected and, and, and looked at the anger and going, what what? value was crossed what line was crossed right how do i re- how do i actually cherish the anger it's in that context this is righteous anger and then refocus it and that that's when 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 i make that that journey for the reason from the anger then 
that's when I'm actually most creative, when I'm most powerful and when I'm most persuasive. And I think each of us have a key. It might not be anger for you. It might be something else, but there is, there'll be some way you experience the world that unlocks the, the way forward and the purpose for you. Thank you for listening to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave me a five-star iTunes review. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook, and become a member of the inspiring, uplifting, and positive Focus on Why Facebook group. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why.